Thank you for listening to the Data is My Science podcast, the show that makes data your passion. With your host, Dapper Data. What's up, what's up, what's up, everybody? You're listening to the Data is My Science podcast, the show that makes data your passion. I am your host, Dapper Data. Today, 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 we're doing something a little bit different, right? I've talked about this in the past. I have talked about data ops in the past, right? But this time we're going to dive a little bit deeper and talk a little bit about open source, the open source side of data ops, all right? And so when we think about data ops, right, the audience, they know by definition, I've talked about it before uh, through Data Kitchen. Data Kitchen was, uh, they sent out a definition on data ops. And they said data ops is a collection of technical practices, workflows, and cultural norms and architectural patterns that enable things like clear measurement and monitoring, uh, very low error rates, um, extremely high data quality, rapid innovation, all those great things, right? And as you know, as the audience of Dapper Data knows that they, they, they always know that I bring in a special guest because I'm not the smartest. Right. So I like to bring in somebody that knows a a little bit more, if not a lot more than me. Um, And today I want to introduce you to uh, Dawa. Dawa Dawa Mon is 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 a very, very brilliant person. Right. Dawa has started early in his age at the age of nine as a programmer. Right. And got into computers at the age of nine. And it's interesting because. For me, that lets me know I'm on the right path. I have a son that is 11 years old, and I started him in programming, learning Python at the age of nine. So I guess I'm on the right path, right, Dawa? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Maybe. I don't know. Um, I mean, I don't know if you should call it the right or the wrong path. It's just the path <laughs> that people cho- choose. I wouldn't say that it's right for everyone to start yeah. uh, programming at nine instead of you know playing video games or playing soccer outside. But it's the path I chose, and it's definitely um, got me to some very interesting places, including this podcast right. with you today. Thanks right, for having right. me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so you have done some amazing things throughout your life so far, right? You know, throughout your career. And it's interesting, right? I've, I've noticed that you have, or read that you did, um, you were able to create a jailbreak on iPhone, right? A tweak. That uh, well, actually you know, I'll stop you there. I, I was not involved in the actual kind of like the people doing the jailbreaks. Uh, I, okay. I would say that those were the people I looked up to at the time. But oh. the thing about the iPhone jailbreaks was that it allows you to um, basically build apps that do things that Apple never officially supported. So way oh. before you could on your notification screen on your phone see like, um, well, I'm saying your notification screen, but back then it was just your, you know, the lock screen. There weren't even notifications on there way back when. There was at oh. most, you know, a music player. Uh, and one of the tweaks that I built in collaboration with some other people, uh, and, and really this was kind of the beginning of, uh, of open source as well, uh, was a tweak that allowed you to put a lot more data on your lock screen. So you could have your notifications there and the weather, uh, you know, stock tickers, uh, anything you could uh-huh. come up with. Because jailbreaks allowed you to hook into parts of iOS that Apple never intended you to. Right, right. No, no, that's interesting. You know, you did this in, at, at high, in, when you were in high school, right? You were focused on this arena around high school area, right? Yeah, you know, yeah so that's, correct. You know, and so, you know, from there you joined GitLab, right? And in 2015, where you was what the the tenth employee, right? <laughs> and so so you've had some interesting times. And now we're there at fifteen hundred employees. You've been able to train the next 10 engineers. You delve into a lot of different things. You're now CEO of a company, you know, and, and I brought you on because I 
I really am excited to hear a lot about what you're doing now with your, with the current company that you're CEO of, um, and and a little bit about your story, right? You know, so tell them a little bit about yourself. Yeah, you've um, you've hit a couple of the highlights already. But if we go all the way back, I was born in the Netherlands. Uh, I, I kind of grew up with computers all around me. My father was the first person in his family who had a computer. So from an early age, it's something that I was, was exposed to in that sense. Uh, so I started programming really early at age nine. Uh, and I was 11 by the time I realized that there were actually people in, on the internet that would pay you to program for them. So pretty much right. throughout my entire high school um, you know, time, when most of my friends after going back from school would just go play video games, I would lock myself up in my room and just like start programming either for personal side projects, scratching my own itch, or for uh, some of these clients I was picking up back then. Um, and then that got me to a point where when I was 16, I really got into iOS and Mac app development, which is also what kind of exposed me to the, the jailbreak side of things. Um, and I started working at this company that made iOS and Mac apps. And after having done that for a year and a half or so, uh, together with one of my bosses at the time, one of the founders of this, uh, this, this iOS and Mac app company, we decided to co-found a startup um, that builds basically applications for bed and breakfast owners to manage their reservations, their guest communication, their private website. So don't think like Airbnb, you do a search and, and you book it and you don't know anything about the owner. Think about these old school mom and pop bed and breakfasts where they want you to really know who they are and they put so much love into the decoration yeah. and everything. Different world, but um, that's what I worked on for a few years. And through this product, interestingly, I uh, came to find GitLab, which at the time was just this really small open source project with a couple of hundred contributors and a team of just a handful of people. Um, and the reason I found GitLab is that I went to a conference in Athens in Greece uh, around Ruby on Rails, which I had started learning at the time. And I was there by myself and I just walked up to a table and I started chatting with some people who were there. Um, and it turned out that the guy I was talking to, his boss was from the Netherlands as well. So he pointed to the corner of the room and he pointed out his, his boss. Uh, so I went to chat to his boss and this guy said that he had, or rather that his parents had a bed and breakfast in the north of the Netherlands. So cool. the guy I was talking to told me that he was the CEO of this little open source GitHub clone effectively yeah. called GitLab. Um, and his parents started using my product. And then he and I started running into each other at conferences around Europe and the Netherlands up to the point where in 2015 uh, or late 2014, he asked me if I wanted to join the GitLab team. Um, and that was just around the same time that the company I had at the time, we were at a point where we were not as invested anymore, the three of us, uh, and we were all kind of looking for new things. So yeah, I joined GitLab and I immediately became immersed in this experience of um, being a tiny little team that is part of a much larger community of users and contributors mm -hmm. because GitLab uh, was founded um, number of years before the actual company called GitLab was founded as an open source project in Ukraine. Whoa. And there was a community of already hundreds of contributors that were building this, this next generation um, DevOps platform, essentially, in the open source. And then we were just a tiny team of 10 people who were actually getting paid to do that full time. But everything we did every day, uh, we tried to do it in the open, on the issue tracker or in Slack, in places where our users and community could really pitch in and weigh in and feel like they had a significant impact on the direction of the product and um, kind of knew what was going on and, and felt like they were part of this, this, this you know, process and this project rather than just users that we occasionally ask for feedback to. Uh, and I'm explaining this because this is very much the same with Meltano, which is the company that uh, I, I run today or that I lead, um, which came out of GitLab. Wow. Um, 
because back in 2018, when uh, GitLab had already grown to however many hundreds of people, GitLab, of course, needed to start setting up its own data organization and start getting better about learning how people were using the product and, and how we can use that to uh, keep improving it. Um, but from this perspective of a company that builds a tool for developers. GitLab, for those who are not familiar, is uh, all about version control of source code. It's about mm -hmm. automatic testing, CICD pipelines. It's about the entire software development lifecycle that uh, companies use to build high quality software and iterate on it quickly. So from the inside, when we started looking for data tooling, we were kind of coming in with the hope that we would find things that would allow your data artifacts to be version controlled and that would allow teams to collaborate effectively across different disciplines and that would have some sense of end-to-end -end testing so that you know when a change in your uh, data integration setup, for example, has unintended consequences for a dashboard downstream. And we were also really hoping to find open source software because, uh, and we can talk about this at length um, further on, um, but we realized that as developers, there's a ton of advantages you get from using open source software that you can modify yourself and kind of debug without always having to defer to a vendor. Um, and we were kind of disappointed with the state of tooling in the data space at the time, which is why we decided there's an opportunity for GitLab to build a um, all-in-one end-to-end platform for the data lifecycle, similar to how GitLab had been such an end-to-end -end platform for the software development lifecycle. Um, and that's what became Altano, which was then spun out of GitLab earlier this year. But I'll, I'll, I'll give the mic back to you there for a sec, because I know- No, 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 no that's good. You know, that's, that's, that's definitely some great history, you know, and I, I do have one question. Uh, if we rewind back to when you started programming, what was the first programming language that you said, hey, I'm, I'm working with? <laughs> okay, okay. So uh, this is a controversial question because some people would say that HTML is not programming. I would actually agree with that. But the very first language I, uh, I took on, like I think many people, uh, was HTML. Uh, what mm -hmm. happened is that a friend of mine realized that if you went into Microsoft Word and you went to the Save As menu and you clicked the HTML option, the resulting document would actually open in your browser. So suddenly mm -hmm. we thought like, Shit, we are building a website like that thing which you think only massive billion dollar enterprises can do we're effectively building our own website at that point we didn't really realize yet that our website was only visible to us locally on that machine instead of the wider world but just building something that ran in the web browser was hugely compelling um, so it was html css javascript and then php which i did for years oh, nice. and years and then we kind of went from there nice 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 so so miltano right let's 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 highlight that, right? I want to I want to jump into that for a second because that is uh, something that and it came out of GitHub, right? You know, like, you, yeah. I mean, sorry, GitLab. Sorry, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> but it came out of GitLab. Right? I'm sure it's like a common mistake that happens, right? <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it came out of GitLab, and you know, it's interesting of you know what it does, right? But one thing that caught my attention was that you said that it focuses on helping people realize the full potential of data. Right. And and so I want to highlight uh, Matano for for a minute and say, what is Matano? Right. How did it start? Well, you already talked about I start with GitLab, but, you know, what is it? You know, what is it? What is it doing? How does it help others uh, grasp that that full potential of data? Yeah, uh, I'd love to touch on that a little bit more. Um, so as you've identified, the, the mission that we have self, set for ourselves as a company is to enable everyone to realize the full potential of their data. And mm -hmm. right now, the vision we have for what Montano can become is uh, to be the foundation of every team's ideal data stack. Uh, 
And I can go into a little bit more detail on what that means in a sec, but just to tie it back to the roots, like I mentioned, uh, coming from GitLab, we thought that we wanted data tooling that looked a little bit more like developer tooling, tools that embrace these software development best practices like open source software, um, you know, DevOps, version control, code review, continuous integration and deployment, et cetera. So we thought that there was a really big opportunity in building uh, like one product that allows an entire data team to collaborate in one place, one repository that can then be hosted on a platform like GitLab or GitHub uh, that would do everything from data integration to the actual dashboards at the very end of the story that you know present the insights and that, that are used by the CFO in their presentation or, or what have mm -hmm. you. Um, and we realized that there was a really big opportunity in taking the kind of best in class open source tools that had already been built for various stages of the data lifecycle uh, and right. bringing them together in kind of one unified interface and um, making it so that the entire data stack, even if it's composed of multiple different tools, can be treated as a single product that can be tested as a whole, deployed as a whole, uh, and iterated on as a whole. So uh, back in 2018, that's what the team inside GitLab started on working. And the first kind of open source technologies that were identified as being really promising for having a place on such a platform were Singer, which is a standard for uh, data connectors, extractors, and loaders that come together to form EL pipelines, um, DBT for transformation using SQL, Airflow for orchestration, uh, this kind of like a scheduled workload management. Right. Um, and that's for the, at the time where we kind of left off. And what we decided to focus on for various reasons in first is making um, Meltano really good at bringing together these different components to allow open source ELT pipelines that can be managed um, just like software development artifacts. So the pipelines are expressed as code. You can use a command line interface on your local machine to configure these and run your pipelines. Mm -hmm. And then we would make it really easy to deploy this on any kind of deployment infrastructure that supports uh, Docker-based containers. Um, so for... Mm -hmm. Uh, while yeah I'll, I'll stop there it sounds like you have a, a no, no 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 that was no 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 continue continue you know I, I i i find it really interesting because i don't i don't know maybe maybe i'm i'm uh, uh ignorant to some of the uh competitors but i don't really see something like that out there right that, that's highlighting uh what you are you know it's kind of a unique space that you decided to delve into you know and um you know it it kind of makes me think well what what makes you say, hey, look, this is a space that I want to highlight and focus in on, right? Only this space, right? What, what, yeah, it's, that's a good one. And I think we can relate it back to that, um, to that mission that we described a second ago to enable everyone to realize the full potential of their data. Coming from this software development background and being really used to the ways that these DevOps practices and open source allow teams to be more um, more effective in many ways. Uh, it allows the people on the teams to be to collaborate more effectively. It allows them to iterate more quickly without fear of accidentally breaking things. And then in the end, it, it just increases the, the, the expectations that the team can have of the quality of their work. And we saw so many parallels between the worlds of software development and the data space that we were kind of surprised to see that a lot of these best practices that in our eyes would transfer quite directly to data teams were not actually being uh, benefited yet from yet to the fullest extent. So we th th thought as our mission at a high level to enable everyone to realize the full potential of their data, which we think starts by making data ops a reality and bringing all of these lessons from the software development to data teams. And uh, we want to do that by building a platform or really a data ops operating system that can form the foundation of people's data stacks, that they can build their own ideal data stack up 
uh, on top by uh, choosing the um, best-in-class components for various stages of the data lifecycle. So that's data integration, transformation, you know, data testing, um, visualization, particular data science use cases uh, in, in a lot of cases too, um, and allowing these to not be treated just as individual tools running in different places with different users that might be integrated through one-to-one -one API connections, but rather um, allowing teams to treat them as components that make up, that come together to make up a bigger data product, the data stack that actually uh, does the work that that company needs from it. And by adding a foundation under these desperate um, disparate components, you end up with a tool that has visibility into every aspect of every uh, step of the data lifecycle and allows you both to um, kind of gain observability and, and, and quality information from it that you cannot if you only have a view into one component. And it allows teams to start treating their entire data stack as a product that they can iterate on as if it were a software development product. So All it's right. very much about merging the worlds of software development uh, and data by introducing software development best practices to data and teaching data people um, the value they could be getting if they got more familiar with concepts like version control and continuous integration. and uh, Meltano is the tool that uh, that we are very confident will make that happen. Yeah, that's interesting because I, it's it's I, I've never really um, you hear data DevOps right you hear you hear it now but well you've heard it uh, for for a few years but um, for me I didn't really get introduced to it until probably when I got into the government and they really started highlighting a lot more when when they had this big cloud. Uh, uh, arena, right? And they were like, okay, well, we need a DevOps team to be able to integrate uh, the, the stuff that's on-premise, right, into the cloud, right? Transferring all, all the way over, you know, taking all the data from one place to another. And that's when they started talking about DevOps, right? Uh, I would always hear version control. I hear a lot of those different things, but they never really tied it for me into the, the word dev, DevOps at that time, you know? Um, so it's definitely interesting to hear more about that, you know? And if we could touch on a little bit on the um, the open source side, and, and this is a good segue into when I think about enterprise level, right? Because what you're doing at, at Miltano is enterprise grade level stuff, right? You know, for, in my eyes, right? And uh, you seem to have mastered that open source on the enterprise level when it comes down to data integration and DevOps, you know, which is a struggle for a lot of government organizations that I see a lot of times, right? Uh, they're bringing in bits and pieces here and there, but they're never really handling that full transformation that that from end to end process when you're thinking about DevOps. And we already know what open source is. Uh, you know, there's a great deal of, of information that's out there that's written about open source from every angle, you know, um, but what about the enterprise open source, right? You know, and and, we, and first and foremost, when you think about um, open source, right, you know, you uh, and you think about integrating it and becoming enterprise level, right? They're thinking that because you have this license, right? That that makes it uh, in the government, that makes it uh, more enterprise level, but that's not necessarily the case. You got enterprise, enterprise you got integration mechanisms that, that you have to do. You have certifications, you got all this good stuff. How do you handle open source on an enterprise level, enterprise scale like you're doing now? That's an interesting question. Um, and, I would say that some of the advantages of open source are possibly uh, even more important to enterprises. And then there are some 
things that enterprises need that can be used by open source software to build a, a sustainable business model so that you can build a really you know big company based on open source software that ends up benefiting far more people than just the small percentage that will pay. So to dive into that a little bit deeper, some of the advantages of open source, um, a really big one is the fact that compared to software as a service solutions that running your browser and you got to pay some subscription and it's running on someone else's infrastructure, there's a really big difference, uh, big advantage in being able to take the open source software for free and install it on your own machines and make it so that your data never has to leave infrastructure that you have control over, whether that is actual you know, machines in your own data center um, which is the case for governments, of course, in a lot of cases, or whether you are using some cloud vendor. Um, it has a lot of security, privacy, and compliance advantages to not have to kind of hand your data over to some external vendor. The other advantage is that if you are an enterprise and, and a lot of your business kind of depends on the software you're using, the tools you're using, uh, when you run into some kind of issue, you don't want to be limited by the support channel that is offered by the vendor to get stuff fixed or to figure out what's going wrong. If it takes two hours to get a response from a vendor, which is honestly really reasonable as far as response time goes, that might mean that your company is just like, you know, blocked for two hours on some critical workload. Right. And open source gives the engineers on the team the opportunity to start investigating themselves and potentially even fix things um, if they are right. confident enough with the code base instead of having to wait for that. The other advantage is that community, Sorry. right? And because there's a huge community out there, right? You know, an open source community to be able to uh, help out with that stuff, right? Is that what you see? Yeah, and I mean, part of it is the fact that the source code itself is just available. So if you run into a problem, just like if you're debugging an issue in your own pro product, you can take the open source code and see if you can figure out where it's going wrong and even fix yeah. it. And the fact that you have thousands of users, uh, if not more, that have the same ability to look at the code and fix it also means often that bugs get fixed really quickly because only yeah. one person has to find it and then it's fixed and then no one else will run into it again. While um, with you know a vendor, uh, the situation might be different. The other advantage could be that if you have specific needs of the software you're using that are not currently being met by the software, if you are just paying for um, you know, a license to use some prepackaged software or software as a service, you are you will have to wait for your feature request to make it onto the product roadmap of the vendor. And if you are a big enough customer, if you pay them enough, then they might prioritize your stuff. <laughs> but that doesn't right. compare at all to just being able to go there in the code base, make the changes you want to make, and really make the tool the ideal tool for your own team and your own use cases without uh, necessarily being limited by someone else's time and someone else's priorities. Um, the other side of it, of course, is that if you're using enterprise, uh, if you're using open source software, many cases, most cases, the um, kind of expectations you can have with regards to uptime and maintenance are, are much lower. It's just code, you can download off the internet, run it on your own stuff, and you're kind of by yourself at that point. But if you're an enterprise and you're depending on this for critical workloads, even if you have the ability to go and debug stuff yourself, in many cases, of course, you will still want to be able to go to the expert and ask them for help or tell them to fix something if you don't really have the time to do it. Or if you need their advice on how to deploy some open source software at scale with millions of users instead of just a handful, uh, it's really useful to be able to go and, and find the expert. So that means that in many cases, when e enterprises use open source software, at some point, they will want to start paying the vendor or some kind of 
official support um, you know, organization behind the open source software so that they can have that 24-7 support, so that they can have those 99% uptime SLAs, um, and they just have a place to go if they can figure it out themselves. And what that means is that as an organization building open source software like Meltano and like GitLab, you can build something and kind of give it away for free to the whole world. And and, and so many people get to benefit and kind of can uh, use that community support if they get stuck. But then there will always be a small percentage of users who want more. And those are the ones that you can charge for either additional functionality uh, that is really enterprise level. <laughs> yeah, like the government, like massive enterprises. Um, there's a lot of different parties that just need to have some assurances if they want to use software. And, and that creates opportunities for open source software to build a business model that allows the open source software to continuously be getting better to the benefit of everyone, including those that don't pay, um, by doing special things for the couple percentage of your users that have more advanced needs. And that is also the uh, business model that we are planning to get into with Meltano down the line, where we want to make be sure that the open source software that we put out for free with really uh, kind of permissive licensing is really high quality tools that, that meet all of the needs of data engineers on the ground and you know small and medium sized teams. But then when it comes to enterprises that have uh, you know more resources and more advanced needs, that's where we can kind of build the sales organization that will then fund the development of this product for everyone um, so in that sense open source benefits uh, everyone and that's also why everyone is explicitly in our mission yeah I agree and 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 what I'm seeing now uh, more than ever you know I, I, I always bring it back to the government because the government because I worked there for several years and um, at one point you know they shied away from open source right you know mm. it was Oh, open source, you know, because of supportability. Like, oh, you yeah. can't support it. You know, I don't, I don't have to deal with those problems, and you have to figure it out and things like that. But more of the engineers that are coming from the commercial space, right, the enterprise and commercial, they're going into the government. They're starting to bend the government's ear a lot more, and 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 they're highlighting more open source because it's more flexible, right? They're being able to solve a lot more problems from an open source standpoint that I see, and and especially in the DevOps world. And you know, you're starting to see things become easier to in integrate and automate. Uh, and and the open source community is like well documented, right? I mean, it might be more, it might be better documented than what you see in the government space a lot of times, you know. And I even saw, uh, you know, the documentation on with your company. It was amazing, right? You know, it's just well documented. It's 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 focused, you know. And you you really don't uh, you should not have so many questions if you if you really read things from end to end, you know, and that seems like the, the open source community is starting to do that a lot better, right? A really big part of that is the fact that the entire open source community, which can easily grow into the millions of users, because of course the, the entry, uh, the bar to entry is really low. It's literally free and you can download it in a few minutes and start playing around with it. What that means is that the documentation itself also becomes crowdsourced and community maintained, just like the software itself. So you have this system where people are motivated to update the documentation whenever they figure something out that isn't in there yet, or when they realize that they've written a useful tutorial, it can become part of the official material documenting the software and that is something that of course that is far less likely to happen with proprietary software that's managed by one kind of company that, that holds holds its resources really close to the vest um, the other advantage when you're talking about training people on using open source software is that compared to proprietary solutions um, the reach of open source software is so large that when you are trying to hire people or you're trying to find talented engineers or data people, the chances that they have familiarity with some open source software is much higher than that they have used the proprietary 
proprietary tool before that you happened to uh, buy as, as an organization. Um, which is part of the reason why, for example, Git won over uh, old school solutions like Perforce or some of these other proprietary version control mechanisms, because Git was what everyone learned in college. Git is what you know I learned when I, not literally when I was nine years old, but if I was nine years old now and I went to Google version control, Git is what I would learn. So you automatically end up with you know 80% of your, your talent pool already knowing these open source solutions. And... Um, it's therefore much cheaper as an organization to just use that stuff as well, instead of having to retrain your people to use a specific tool you chose. And that's part of the reason why open source has become more and more ubiquitous in organizations of every size. And this also extends to database technologies like Postgres and MySQL um, compared to things in, of the past like Oracle. Um, and then when I say of the past, of course, Oracle still exists and they still have massive yeah. customers, including in the government, but not a single engineer who is working in open source today who is just coming out of university or whatever is going to have Oracle as their database of choice. So that means yeah. that if you're sticking with proprietary tools, you are losing out kind of on the abilities of that new generation of talent. And a big part of what we're doing with Meltano is also making it so that new data scientists, engineers, analysts can get started really quickly with a completely open source uh, data stack that allows them to do everything from data integration to visualization without having to um, you know adopt any proprietary tools or pay anything at all and by allowing giving them something that is production grade and, and realistic uh, to train with and practice on it also prepares them really well for the job market uh, and it allows them to bring this tooling into new organizations um, because you know in our eyes, the advantages of data ops and open source and Meltano in general uh, will be so clear that this will start replacing proprietary stacks um, in many places. And not just Meltano itself, but of course, in combination with those open source projects that we have kind of adopted as components um, that, that we think are best in class uh, in, in a lot of those areas. Tools like DBT, you know, supersets for visualization. Um, there's a whole list. Do you see um, open source uh, uh, being a huge contributor to DevOps success, you know, like if, if, if open source was not around, you know, would DevOps be as successful, you know, without it? That's a really good question. And I think um, that open source and DevOps are kind of um, tied and DevOps couldn't really have existed without open source. And the reason why I say that is that a, a core concept of, of DevOps is that you have um, isolated environments and, and reproducible products, basically. And what this means is that um, when you are making changes to your software product locally, you can have the entire software product running on your own machine so that you can make a change and immediately know if you accidentally broke something. Mm -hmm. And then when you think it's good, you post it up to GitLab or GitHub and your team can review it. And there will be an automatic pipeline that will, um, again, kind of test from end to end if you didn't break something, again, mm -hmm. in an isolated environment. And only when all of these uh, steps have kind of been completed, that's when you actually update the code that's running in production where you know any mistake could actually affect users or affect dashboards. Uh, but what this requires is for the entire product, which in DevOps is usually just a website or an iPhone app or whatever, um, but in data, that's the entire data stack with all of the different integration configurations. It needs to be able to run just as easily on an engineer's local machine as in a, an automatic CI pipeline as in a production deployment environment. And what this requires is for all of the components of that product 
to be readily available in all of these different places. And open source software, you can just download it from the internet in a few seconds, install it and start using it. If you're using a software as a services solution for your EL or for your data visualization, you simply do not have the option of running it separately locally and separately you know, on, on in, a, in, in a testing pipeline and separately on the production environment. Because mm -hmm. by definition, there's only a single instance of the SaaS tool you're using. So open source, um, be, by, by virtue of being so easily installable wherever you need it, enabled um, this is concept of reproducible builds and isolated environments, which is really core to the life cycles that DevOps is built around, where um, you have your changes go through a process of validation before affecting production. And that is really what gives DevOps teams those advantages of rapid iteration and high confidence in their end results because they can play around without being worried about breaking things. And that is exactly what we want to transfer to the world of data, uh, and which is why we think that getting more and more of the data world to adopt open source data tools instead of these proprietary SaaS solutions is a big part of um, bringing data ops, bringing DevOps to data, in other words, realizing data ops, and of um, enabling everyone to realize the full potential of their data through these qualities. Yeah, I mean, great points, you know, and I, I definitely see that um, the open source software adoption uh, within enterprise and, and um, the government, you know, had a significant impact on how broad and successful the enterprise DevOps deployments are today, right? You know, I mean, things like, one of the things you highlighted that, that really hits home with me is lack of lock-ins, right? That's very appealing to me <laughs> um, with being a manager in the government at some point, you know, um, I think that that was a big thing. Uh, also being able to do like easy modifications, right? Throughout the time, right? You know, in-house or outsource them to third parties, you know, and the insurance that the open source offers, the insurance that offers, right? Because it's pretty big, you know, yep. um, against the vendors, right? The vendors are disappearing or, or ending support and things like that. But but you have uh, open source that's not really following that path, right? You know, and then the role, so the role of open source to me is really growing, if not as it's grown past some of what you call the, uh, the typical, I guess, way that vendors are doing, right? You know, and, and so, you know, so again, in the past, I, I did talk about um, cloud, right? I talked about cloud. I don't know if you've dealt a lot with the cloud or is 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 Miltano able to be like in the marketplace in the cloud or something like that right now? A good question. So um, right now you can deploy Miltano wherever you want, uh, as long as it kind of has support for either just running Linux style commands or if it can host Docker containers. So that means that you can really easily deploy it on the cloud right now, but you would still have to go through the process manually of setting up your project on the local machine. And then once it's ready for production, pushing it up to one of these clouds. Uh, wow. We're not currently in the cloud marketplaces, but that is uh, on the roadmap as well. And um, right now we require our users to manage the deployment of Meltano themselves, which is something that early adopters of open source technology are relatively comfortable with. But we also have plans further down the roadmap when we start thinking more about commercialization um, of having our own kind of hosted platform as a service where people can 
take the data stack that they built on top of Meltano, push it up to our platform, and then our platform will manage um, everything to do with the underlying cloud infrastructure so that the team can, needs to only worry about their repository that holds the definitions of their data stack in terms that Meltano understands. Yeah. Uh, but we see some users that are using Meltano on their own private data centers if they really, really care about security, privacy, and compliance. Some others that are just hosting it on uh, AWS or GCP or Azure. And then others that have started asking us to manage the uh, deployment for them. But like I said, that's still further down the line for us. No, that's amazing though, Lisa. I mean, you're able to deploy in the cloud, anyone in the cloud. So that's that's important because a lot of applications are not able to do that at this moment, you know, mm -hmm. and the cloud community is growing so much. Right. You know, and and being able to implement open source products within the cloud community, you know, is, is going back to the whole rejecting vendor lock ins, you know, being able to have rapid innovations, you know, over time, uh, openness. Right. And that transparency, right. The high transparency that you get from being open source is, yeah. is very, you know, and, and you all are presenting that, you know. The vendor so, lock-in topic is an interesting one because you have kind of a um, you vendor lock-in is decreased because of course the open source software itself it, it's kind of off the community it will never go away and if the company that currently kind of provides support starts you know goes away or whatever there will be enough interest in the community to kind of step in and then take it over or even yeah. if the company that is maintaining an open source project goes in a direction that the community doesn't like in many cases depending on the license the community has the opportunity to fork it and kind of go their own way but yeah. So that's all really, really great. But the product lock-in in some sense might be higher than the vendor lock-in because mm -hmm. if you are a user of open source software and you contribute to it to make it even more finely tuned and, and precision created for your specific needs, you're mm -hmm. never going to find a competing product that is as well suited to your situation as anything else, which it's is really powerful <laughs> because if you are... And at GitLab, we saw this, for example, as well. Um, the cool thing about GitLab, of course, is that it had a company of now like 1,500 people, an open source community in the, in the thousands of contributors. And some of those contributors were customers of GitLab that wanted certain functionality, didn't want to wait for GitLab to prioritize it. So they would hire full-time Ruby on Rails developers in their own employment just to have those constantly contributing stuff they wanted into GitLab. But at that point, once GitLab has like five features that this company built because they really wanted them, that company is never going to find any other product that has those five features. Uh, and they're essentially locked into the GitLab product forever, even if they're not locked into the GitLab vendor. And that's right. still a good situation to be in because, of course, once an open source product has millions of users, even if the company falls away, like I said, another company might step in because within these thousands of users, there will be plenty of um, interest and incentives to keep the product alive and not just have it die the moment the initial company steps out. So the risk of being product locked in is much lower than vendor locked in. Um, and it's actually an advantage, of course, for open source tools that your users, some of them, start to like you so much that they could never use something else anymore. But you do have to, of course, be aware that as the company or the primary maintainer of the open source project, uh, you need to treat your community with, with you know, all the respect in the world and really listen to their needs and make sure that they kind of trust your position as a steward of the project that they use and that they also feel some ownership over as they should because it is community led uh, and with Meltano you know a really large percentage of the contributions to the product today are coming from the community and the last thing we want to do is uh, is, is alienate them uh, but that is an interesting kind of you know line to tread um, as an open source vendor 
Right. And, and I mean, that, that also raises some more questions, you know, in my eyes, uh, once you think about, you know, a, a product continuing to update and grow and things like that, but then you have, uh, uh, the ability to, to make your own, um, I guess features as a, uh, if it's open source or it's allowing you to, to be, to be able to do your own updates and, and things like that, you know, you almost have to keep up right with 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 the other side right i mean do you yeah. see that <laughs> so there, yeah no that's a really good point and there are kind of two models there so either as a company when you're using an open source project you can decide i'm just going to fork it and build all my own changes and then like every month try to see what changed in the, the original the upstream version and then move those changes back but that mm -hmm. is something that that takes a lot of work and you're bound to run into issues at some point so the the fairer approach also to the open source community is to contribute back these changes into the upstream so that the changes that you might have made locally um, that you might test out locally before you are ready to kind of present them to the world actually end up back in the official um, line of the product so that all users can benefit from it. And then you don't need to be constantly updating your own version because your changes are in the official version already. Mm, okay, okay, okay. That, uh, that, yeah, that definitely brought uh, that question to, to, <laughs> to, to um, I, I wanted to highlight that question for sure because I know a lot of the audience uh, would, yeah. would, would be interested in something like that. So when you think about developer tools, right, for the DevOps community, um, you have some of those well-known tools that, that people have uh, been using for a few years, right, you know, like Kades, right, you know, Kubernetes or uh, you know, Docker, right? Do you see, you know, uh, a lot of other tools being being used besides those? And, and do you... What's your favorite, right? What's your favorite developer tool for DevOps, for the DevOps community? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, um, I, I would be remiss if I don't say GitLab, uh, which is yeah. you know, the end-to-end -end <laughs> platform for the DevOps There's lifecycle. Them. And I spent a lot of time building it and making it uh, what it is today. Mm -hmm. um, but in general, I think that's something that is maybe overlooked in, in DevOps tooling is the importance of tools that, uh, that kind of um, allow you to bring together your entire product in one repository. So when you are building um, you know, a, a Node.js web application, for example, you're going to be using NPM, the Node Package Manager, to manage the different components, the open source libraries you want to pull in. But you can also use it to define uh, utility scripts that you want your team to use. You can use it to define you know, Git hooks you want to run every time someone makes a change so that certain you know, mistakes or inconsistencies are automatically addressed before someone commits. And having this kind of tool that the entire team can come home to that provides the foundation for the bigger product that they have built uh, is really valuable. And such a package manager um, is also pretty much exactly the space that Meltano wants to inhibit in data projects, becoming that foundational layer, that operating system, the package manager that allows entire data teams to come into one repository, have to learn one tool that kind of ties together all of their work across the different disciplines um, and allows them to interact with the different components in a consistent fashion and have some shared vocabulary about the way the data stack is put together. Uh, mm -hmm. And this, this package manager is um, key in, in software development products. And absolutely, we think it will also be in data. Do you see that? Uh, so would it be safe to say that there is not one tool that, that can do everything? Or is there a tool out there that you think that can pretty much 
do everything and, and do all your needs, you know, or is it maybe a, a, a skill thing, right? You know, uh, who uh, maybe, you know, somebody might, might uh, uh, like MySQL better than uh, Oracle database, you know, I mean, maybe it's just because of the fact that they really know Oracle, you know, SQL more than they know the other, right? You know, and, and that's why it's their favorite, you know, is, is there one out there for DevOps that you, that you think that can do it all, or is it is it sort of a, a favoritism? I think that's a really good question, and it goes to the fact that there is no such thing as a best in class tool. There's only a best tool for the job, and depending on the job, and that that and you have to take into account everything, including the existing skill sets of your team, uh, the scaling needs you're gonna have or not gonna have, um, you know, existing experience. Like I said is extremely important. Other products you're using that it needs to integrate with, like a tool that already integrates with your, your current stack is always going to have some advantage over one that doesn't yet where you would need to implement right. it yourself. So when it comes to um, tools that try to be you know, one tool for the entire lifecycle, like GitLab or Meltano, it's really important to acknowledge that the, the first party built-in solutions are never going to be ideal or, or perfect for everyone. And allowing and enabling and actually encouraging that choice to pick the tools that are best for the job um, is a really big part of building a tool that can actually claim to, to serve people in, in the end-to-end -end story. So Meltano very intentionally is not an end-to-end -end data ops tool that does everything with its built-in solutions for integration and visualization, but it is an operating system that allows you to bring in the best on and class tools mm -hmm. and use them on top of Meltano. Um, we describe it explicitly as modular because we realize that different teams will have different choices in the models that they want to bring in. Someone might want to use DBT for transformation. Other teams will have different preferences. And on the data integration side, for example, there are a bunch of solutions that compete on various fronts, including the libraries of connectors they support. And mm -hmm. the open source data integration technology that we support and recommend called Singer is not going to be the best fit for every single person. And that's okay because we're building the open source software such that it becomes the foundation of every team's ideal data stack. And that is very intentionally chosen. Uh, not every team's ideal data stack is going to look the same. So we want to provide the foundation that allows every team to uh, find out what their ideal stack looks like and use Meltano to manage it in a consistent fashion while acknowledging the fact that a team's ideal data stack is going to change over time. Like a new tool might come out next year that is going to change everything and they want to adopt it. And there's right. going to be another team that has completely different needs uh, and that might have a data stack that looks completely different. But all these teams have similar needs in terms of data ops, more effective collaboration and um, higher confidence in the quality of the resulting end product. So we think that Meltano can also be a unifying force, which becomes kind of a core technology that data people around the world will learn while acknowledging that the actual stack they end up using day to day will not look the same for the vast majority right. of them. No, I think that's amazing, you know, and that that's uh, man, it was just a, such a great idea to bring bring in Meltano <laughs> because now you're you're not really um, uh, focusing on a specific area. Well, you are right. You have, but you're flexible, right? You're flexible for the customer, yes. right? And and that's. And that's very key, you know, building a product that's flexible for the customer to be able to say, hey, look, I love these tools. So I or I, I'm using these tools specific to my company because of X, Y, Z. And you can you, you can say Matano can say, hey, it doesn't matter. Right. You know, just just bring it on, <laughs> you know. And, and so you're actually being able to 
adhere to multiple and being able to scale across multiple platforms, you know, versus being able to uh, being pigeonholed into one, you know. Um, so that's amazing, you know. Uh, and and something that we didn't talk about, right, which was software development, right, diving into that a little bit more and the best practices related to DevOps with software development. You know, I think that's key to highlight, you know, in our conversation because uh, so many people skip past the software development side of things. And when we think about software development, you know, best practices, right? You got co collaborating, right? Developing that collaboration, collaborative culture or uh, agile project management, right? So many different things and best practices you implement. What are some of the best practices that you see or that you recommend with software development and DevOps? Yeah, good question. Um, we have, of course, talked about a number of these already. In some sense, you know, version control is a best practice, like being able to go back in time and see why certain changes were made or roll back certain changes or even just um, have the opportunity to make changes easily without worrying that you are throwing away something that worked by experimenting with something that might just be a complete right. dead end. Version control is so key. Code review similarly allows you to... Uh, tap into the knowledge of your team and, and getting their feedback on stuff before just making a change in production and hoping it works. Cool. Continuous integration uh, and deployment allows teams to make changes locally without worrying about changing stuff in production and um, allows them to iterate rapidly and try stuff out while it's fresh in their head without needing to... Um, I don't know where I was going to take that sentence. When I think about something that you brought up, though, code review, right? I mean, code yeah. review is important and it's such, in my eyes, it's such a manual task, mm. right? <laughs> is there any thoughts, you know, even at Meltano to, to even make something like that automated? Can that even be possible, right? <laughs> Software development side? <laughs> well, this, so that's a good question. So, I mean, automated code review is really about all of the things that are obviously wrong, right? Like a lot of code review is subjective. You're looking at the code and you have to have an opinion, like, could this be written better? Does this have unforeseen consequences or not? But things that are obviously wrong, like you made a change here and as a result, that or that thing is broken, or you made a change here and, and the syntax you've used is inconsistent with what we use across the product. Those things are being automated more and more every day. Uh, that's where linters come in that allow you to have kind of standards for code style across the product. And that's also where automatic testing and continuous integration comes in. Uh, testing that stuff actually works and not leaving that to the users so that the user can really or the person can really focus on reviewing whether the code was written in the best, most maintainable, most understandable way. And when we're talking about data, there's this, this value of being able to review each other's code and have two people who are confident that it does what it's supposed to do is really valuable, but still really lacking because a lot of data work takes place in these web interfaces where you point, you click at buttons to make certain changes. And then when you hit save, it's immediately taking effect in production. Uh, mm -hmm. Whether that's on your data integration, EL solution, like Fivetran, where you enter some credentials and you click save, and then you just fingers crossed and hope that you didn't accidentally make a typo. Similarly, if you're using Looker or some other visualization tool, in many cases, you're going to be dragging and dropping um, dashboards manually and making changes to SQL all in that interface without some kind of flow where you get a second opinion to make sure you didn't make some kind of dumb mistake. So um, that's also part of, of the, the future that we see for data teams, where more of these assets that make up the data stack are actually expressed in code so that they can be version controlled and code reviewed and tested automatically. And this is something that today open source data tools are um, way ahead of the curve on compared to some of the SaaS 
data solutions that don't acknowledge that um, data teams of the future will use way more skills and, and best practices from the software development world than they do today. So the way we see it, we are just kind of at the beginning of this massive data ops wave that is going to revolutionize the way data people do their work uh, in a similar sense as DevOps was such a revolution for software development uh, and, and teams building products together. Because the way we think it, your data stack is just as much a software product as you know the, the, the web application or iOS app that another team in your company might make. Right. Uh, great, great, great response, man. And, uh, you know, I, I also wanted to, when I think about software development and, um, and DevOps, right. I, I also think about, um, metrics, right. Mm. Like uh, being able to monitor metrics, uh, a lot, right. Uh, that's been something that I think was a problem and, and people started highlighting it, you know, a lot more. And, and so it's being implemented a lot into the, the DevOps stack a lot more. And uh, do you, it, even within Meltano, is that something that is highlighted a lot, you know, uh, monitoring the metrics going on, you know, tools, automating, tooling, automating, and, and being able to measure sort of everything you can, right, within, <laughs> within whatever platform is being implemented on your, on your environment? Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, and absolutely, observability and, and metrics are um, on our roadmap as, as kind of a core functionality that we think will be made possible by having your entire data stack being built on this shared foundation. Because Meltano uniquely has a full insight and full control over everything that goes in, on in your data stack. It can follow all the data streams and it knows how configuration on one end of the life cycle affects things down the line. So our first kind of work that we have set out for ourselves in the coming months is to build integrations for more and more of these data tools that people can run on top of Meltano so that you can actually have an entire data stack on Meltano. And then once a team gets to that point, um, we will start focusing on the functionality that, that is uniquely made possible by this full perspective that Meltano has on your data stack. And mm -hmm. uh, the confidence that you have in the data at the end of your, of your data journey is, of course, on one side in things that you can um, proactively test in your CI pipelines just to yeah. kind of prevent obvious code mistakes. But a lot of it is also dependent on the actual data that is flowing through your data pipelines and through your toolings. So then you're talking about runtime level uh, observation. So we are definitely starting with error detection um, kind of on the not runtime level, but the, you know, the development time level, you make a change, mm -hmm. you accidentally broke something and observability at the point where it's running in production is uh, kind of the next step in our, uh, in our journey. Oh, sweet, sweet, man. That's, that's awesome, man. Well, I'm not going to take up, you know, too much of your time, you know, anymore, but I do want to leave the audience with a dope nugget. It's been a pleasure having you on air. Dawa. It's been amazing. Uh, you definitely gave some uh, key insights, you know, into DevOps, open source, you know, and how they can all play together and, and the future, right, you know, and, and to think about. And uh, to me, you know, something that's not even technical, right, at all, what I took away from this from the beginning was that exposure is key, right? You know, mm -hmm. just looking at your story, um, the traveling, different places, right, I think I saw 49 different 
countries, man. You know, just you just been all over the world, being able to uh, uh, focus on a passion that you have, engaging and and finding your path. You know, I think exposure is key to things, right? Uh, you you live in Mexico City now, and you're from Netherlands. You know, you you've been all over, right? You know, and and I think that that's important to be able to find your passion. You know, is there anything that you uh, want to leave with the audience? Yeah, actually, I'll, I'll hook into what you just said there. Uh, so just first tiny correction, uh, the 49 number you got was actually the number of GitLab colleagues I visited back in 2006. Oh, okay, okay good. In six <laughs> months. But okay. these 49 colleagues did live in 20 cities in 14 countries. So, oh, man. You know, it, was, it was such an amazing trip, not just you know the travel and the seeing places, but also getting to know these colleagues and having them show us their neighborhoods. And it really uh, makes the world seem really small in a sense because we're all, of course, much more similar than we are different uh, and in the end everyone just wants to have kind of make a nice life for, make a comfortable life for themselves and one thing that this brought me in combination with um, having started programming so early when of course the only material available to me at age nine was exactly this kind of open source content that had been written by communities of people that wanted to create things for the world for the benefit of everything um, obviously no university was going to let me into their computer science program at age nine but the right. internet was essentially um you know, much more than even the best computer science course could ever be. So open source software was super relevant in allowing really young people like myself back then uh, to start using really high quality, um, you know, production ready software. But similarly, having seen so many countries in the world, and like you mentioned, now living in Mexico City, um, I'm also very aware of the fact uh, in the way in which less resourceful people, countries, companies, are uh, disadvantaged from day one when it comes to the work they can do with their data or, or whatever they can accomplish at all. Because a lot of these data tools are out of reach for them. And that means that they are just not in a position to use data to the full extent, uh, or like I said in our mission, to realize the full potential of our data. So um, creating something that, that kind of levels the playing field and allows these smaller and, and less resourceful organizations to make the most of their data, just like massive, well-funded government or other enterprises can, uh, is, is really part of what motivates me. And that can definitely be traced back to uh, some of my own history. Amazing, amazing. Well, thank you again. I appreciate you. Now, I want to get into the fun part. It'll be real quick, right? You know, I do this game with every guest. It's called Overrated, Underrated. And um, what I do is essentially ask you a series of about five to seven questions, or I'll make, uh, uh, or I'll just throw out five to seven words, and you get to choose whether you believe it's overrated, underrated, or uh, exactly where it needs to be, right? You can explain it if you want to. You don't have to if you don't want to, but um, are you ready? Let's do it. All right. Programming languages. Uh, I think specific programming languages tend to be overrated. Programming languages in general, um, I think underrated for sure. Programming is one of the most powerful skills and creative outlets uh, out there in the world. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I have my son, and uh, he's learning Python now. and. I started learning Python on my own and I, I started off with Java and C++ and C and all that good stuff. And, and I, I, I truly believe that it's, uh, for me, it's, it's underrated. You know, even if you don't get into software development or anything like that, it just expands your mind, you know, tremendously. Um, 100%. All right. And being able to Matt. just like leverage this, this 
almost unbounded power that exists in your computer um, to solve things, automate things. Uh, it's it's a uniquely powerful skill, and uh, I've always seen it, like I said earlier, as as a creative effort. Um, yeah. using this material and, and making it do new things. And you're only limited basically by your imagination. And in some cases, the uh, compute resources available to you. Right, right, right. It's art, man. It's art. <laughs> it, absolutely. Uh, all right. Cheese. <laughs> uh, underrated. I'm Dutch. I love cheese. Oh, I was going to ask, do you love cheese? <laughs> because you're Dutch. <laughs> I, I, I love cheese sometimes. Sometimes I get uh, I get tired of it. All right, ice cream. Uh, overrated. I'm not too much of a sweet tooth. Okay, okay. All right, studying abroad. Oh, underrated. Um, I mean, people generally rate it pretty highly, but I think there's something unique about uh, really immersing yourself in another culture and country and studying abroad forces you to do that more than basically anything else. Mm -hmm. I agree, I agree. Uh, video games. Um. Personally, I have never been much into video games. Like I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. all the time my sp friends spent playing games, I spent programming. And in the yeah. long run, I'm, <laughs> I don't regret that choice at all. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also think that video games are underrated because people think of it more like as a waste of time than the form of art it really is. Like a, mm -hmm. a video game with a 60-hour story, uh, as far as I'm concerned, has the same value of 60 hours worth of movies. And then you probably need 20 mm -hmm. movies to even get close. So as art, um, underrated. Yeah, yeah, that's a good, that's a good, great point. I never looked at it like that. And, you know, I, I, I used to, uh, you know, talk to my son about uh, always playing all these games all the time. But that's the generation now, right? They're playing a lot of Roblox. They're getting money for playing Roblox and all these different games, you know, on YouTube and teaching it, right? You know, uh, if they wanted to be, uh, if they did not want to be a consumer and they want to be a creator, they could do something like that, you know. All right, uh, Snow. Oh, underrated. I miss snow so much. I, uh, oh, really? The Netherlands is not as snowy as you'd think. There have been very few snow recently. And here in Mexico, of course, I don't see any at all. I uh -huh. love uh, I love playing in the snow. I do not like the snow, man. I, do not, <laughs> I don't like the cold weather. All right. So I do not know how to pronounce this, but I would um, I'll save the Dutch donuts, the, sprink, the sprinkle with sugar, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? They're oh. called uh, Oliobolen. Yes, Oliobolen. What about those? Are they, are they good? Are they oh, they're delicious. And then, okay, so I think they are probably rated exactly right because the the, the nice thing about Olibollen, which just mean, literally means oily balls, um, <laughs> they're, they're a delicacy that they only serve in the Netherlands basically around Christmas and New Year's. It's very much associated mm. with New Year's. And you can only get them during that roughly two-week period in the year. So I think they did it very right because if it was available all year round, People would not really be that into it and wouldn't get it. But if they if it's arbitrarily scarce during yeah. those two weeks, the whole country eats tons of it. So I think they found the right balance between, you know, at limiting the availability yeah. to make it seem uh, more special than it would be if it was always available. So I think they hit right. about the right point there. How do they do that? How do they limit this? How do they, how do they limit? It's I mean, just traditionally, they... it's just a tradition. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. I was going to say that they just not provide the. Uh, oh, yeah. The, the Oli Bull the... cartel. They will only sell them yeah. this year. No, no, no. All, that's right. Fine. <laughs> All right. So, last one, uh, I think the pronouncer is hue Huevos, uh, Rancheros. So, Ranch Eggs. Uh, uh, which Huevos Rancheros. Yeah. Uh, underrated, yeah. I think it's delicious, but few people would probably rank it in their top five Mexican foods. Uh, and uh -huh. I think I don't know if it would be up there for me, but uh, it's really good. 
Okay, okay. Well, again, thank you. I appreciate you being on the podcast. Audience, you are listening to today's My Science Podcast, a show that makes data a passion. I'm your host, Dapper Data. Thank you for tuning in. And Dawa, is there anything, is there, uh, is there anything that you uh, have coming up, you know, speaking games, engagements or anything like that, books or anything? Yeah, good question. Um, so there's nothing super specific that we have coming out in the few next coming months. But I would say that if uh, you know you listen to this conversation and, and some of this talk about bringing software development best practices to data resonates, uh, or if you just like to try out Maltano, come join our Slack community uh, with 2,000 Slack, uh, you know, 2,000 data professionals, and be part of this project. Like I said, it's open source, and uh, your opinion matters more than anything else. And we also have a number of job openings. So if you'd want to work full time on these problems. Uh, go to meltano.com slash jobs and uh, we'd love to talk to you we're an all remote company so don't feel held back by um, wherever you might be based all right Where, where's the uh, what's the slack community uh hashtag is it a... uh it's just called meltano so you can go to meltano.com slash slack and then it will take you into the uh the slack community with 2000 okay. data professionals okay great great and where can they reach you at uh linkedin or anything like that yeah, absolutely. Uh, LinkedIn, my name is Dawa Man, as, uh, as has been said. Uh, and on Slack, of course, uh, you can also send me a DM. All right. Thank you. And again, audience, thank you uh, for listening in. Again, you can purchase my book at, uh, at www.misadapterdata.com forward slash dapper book. Um, and you can find me on LinkedIn, Instagram, any other social media platforms at Mr. Dapper Data. Uh, again, I love you all. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening to the Data is My Science podcast, the show that makes data your passion with your host, Dapper Data.